for a new opening to our show we've been running like the same thing for like a long time and it's like really friendly you know it's got the little song and it's got me saying welcome and then you do the hello laura thing and like everyone likes it everyone does but, like that like it's like the only part of the show i'm pretty sure like most people like <laughs> but um maybe we need to change it up like i was thinking the other day like we need to get into like more like drive time radio style okay so what do you mean you know like we need to like it needs to like come on and then there needs to be like you know welcome to print run and then it like goes nuts and then it's like on kiss fm you know what i mean we need like a more powerful like on soundcloud or yeah, yeah, your yeah. favorite podcast right. i app. want i want like a way more there can be like a um you know like a scorpion song playing in the background we can't you know? afford a scorpion song <laughs> we can't afford the rights to we that we can only we can only not afford it if someone tells scorpion like we'll just play it we'll just bootleg it in the background it'll be super sweet <sighs> and then like we can you know just like start running the show a lot more like i'm thinking like yeah, like drive time sports radio, you know. We're gonna like need, we need to like put in like a really bad like joke sound that we make whenever somebody tells a joke. We also need yeah, we need way more sound effects, and we need uh, we need nicknames for each other. Like you can be like like or at least one of us. Like maybe the show can be like the book hour with Laura and the Belch. You know what I mean? And like <laughs> it's um, well, my uh, my name on Slack is Friendorito. Yeah. Exactly. Like it has to. Because I'm a friend who helps you eat burritos because I'm a bad influence. You are a bad influence. Um, I am. Eric once called me the cheat day friend. Yeah. Like I am the, the, the cheat day food friend. The diet goes to shit when Laura <laughs> comes over. Um, oh, no. When you come over here. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, no, the basic idea here is I think it's time to rebrand as like a really like horrible like should we can get like a bunch of like men's hair loss ads like throughout the middle. <laughs> Um, I want to get those Blue Apron ads. Yeah, how that's do I the get, other thing. How do I get Blue Apron to give me money? Okay, so that's that's the other direction, right? Is then we could go into like really nice like NPR style. Like we can just be sitting here and like just in the middle of like some rant about whoever it is, Stephen King, Joyce Carol Oates, whoever it is we're yelling at this week. We can just be like, and oh, that reminds us, folks. I can Blue do Apron. <laughs> Blue Apron. Uh, we can we can just pull a Carrie Miller from Minnesota Public Radio yeah. and be like every single week talk about how uh, people always re- lie about what they read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like that would be good. Um, yeah, we should we should actually honestly just start like doing ads for companies without them telling us and then just to like sound official like i feel like there would be a benefit to like pretending you had a sponsor cuz they they would say you would get no. more sponsors cuz they wouldn't say no but like if we said yeah you know we do we do reads for these major companies on our show like that would technically be true even though they weren't paying us i'm just being a shill you know you know the only thing though is that like a lot of the blue apron ads have like a special discount coupon code but oh, we we'll can make... like give somebody else's coupon code <laughs> this is... we can or be we can like just make one up and when it doesn't we work we like blue apron <laughs> hashtag #cereal and <laughs> the thing we can do yeah 
We could use someone else's, or we could, like, make one up, and then when people, like, yell at us online because it doesn't work, we could just start, like, adding Blue Apron as though it was, like, supposed to be, like, hey, how come our how come our coupon code doesn't work, Blue Apron? And, like, just, like, adding them and talking about how, like, disappointed we are on their brand as we, like, made up, like, Loon as, like, a code on their site. <laughs> this is really good. The point is that um, bigger and better things yeah. coming for We're the We're absolutely not <laughs> changing the beginning, but... Which, which is to say... Welcome to this episode of Print Run Podcast. That is not how it goes. That's not even how the opening goes. I said podcast. Normally we just say print run. You got it. Okay, let me let me do it. Let me do it. Let me do it. All right, flip we ready? It, flip it on us, yeah. I'm changing it. This yeah. is as much change as we can stand. Yeah, I can't. I'm not a man who enjoys change. Yeah. No. Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Hain, and with me is always... <laughs> <laughs> I did that on purpose. Yeah, good. Okay, let me do it again for real. Uh-huh. Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Laura Zatz, and with me, as always, is Eric Hain. Say hello, Eric. Hello, Laura. <laughs> um, Excellent. The, the, here's the problem with that, though, is that now that we've done that, like everyone is going to demand that you do the opening. And then now. you say like, hello, everyone, Laura. Because everyone who listens to the show likes you way better. Like anytime there's any sort of like <laughs> split, like the best content we ever produce is like when you like dunk on me on Twitter. Like people love that the most. And so now Will that, you foolishly nah. bet that I would only read five books in Mexico. Now that they've heard you do the opening, there's no turning back. Well, um, if you would like me to continue doing the opening <laughs> and that Eric will then be forced to say, hello, Laura. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe it's only funny when I say it. Yeah, I maybe. don't know. But either way, we should actually just start this show. <laughs> um, we do have a pretty good show for you today, though. Uh, we're going to be talking about all sorts of high minded things. We've got a bunch of awards lists. <laughs> Woo! Man, been a while on that. Um, Rude. We, <laughs> I do what um, I can. Yeah. We, we've we got a bunch of awards lists to get through, which we're going to talk about. Um, we've got a really, I thought, an interesting article uh, from Vulture about kind of coming up with a new canon. Mm, um, and not I, the pirate types. Well, not the pirate types, Laura. That's correct. Um, and so... Yeah, we'll get into it here in a minute, but before we dive into all of it, how about the basic rundown? All right. So we have reached the very last episode before Eric becomes Mrs. Hain. It's the last. So he will be getting married. We're recording this on uh, Friday the 21st. Mm -hmm. Um, He will be married a week from tomorrow. So we're going to be taking a little bit of a break because then he will be off on his honeymoon. And Mm -hmm. then once he arrives... I will be getting married. Um, So we might be able to squeeze an episode in between when he comes back and when I get hitched. But if not, we will see you in the middle of October. But never fear. If you are a Patreon subscriber, uh, we will still be getting you your episodes. So Mm -hmm. we will have the first pages and Q&A show coming at you this week and next week. Then we will also have our special episodes for October coming in October. Yep. Fun fact about that. Um, we haven't yet decided what the third episode is for our special episodes. You know, as you know, that one is very much a kind of a flex episode, if you will. We yes. can talk about anything. So for September, we did a Q&A. Um, we can turn it into anything. Hell, we could even probably do another uh, Call of Cthulhu round. We probably could. If that interests yep. you. Yep. Um, but yeah, hit us up with your suggestions. Also, send us your 
queries, your first pages, your questions, your suggestions to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you've been listening recently, you will know that we have a new section. It is called Taloon It May Concern. Uh, and it is just like the Q&A. It's just like the hashtag Ask Print Run, except it's messier. Mm-hmm. You see, we're getting into the advice game. So we want your highly specific and emotional questions about publishing or just life. Yeah, no, if, if I don't have enough um, interpersonal drama, my blood sugar gets low. <laughs> so it's very important that you send us that kind of stuff. And I would say that the response so far has been really good. Yeah, it's been um, great. We've, like, people have come through with good questions. So do send. Wonderful. Okay, so let's get into it. Mm-hmm. We have awards. We've got awards. Um, so I guess, I mean, you know, you know, in years past... We have kind of picked apart, you know, the various lists separately, the Man Booker and the National Book Award. And that's what we have here today. To be clear, we've got a Man Booker short list and we've got a National Book Award long list. And um, I wanted, you know, instead today, rather than like going through each one, you know, kind of line by line and like figuring out, um, you know, what we think about each individual, you know, book on the list or whatever. I think it's like more interesting to almost take the whole set of it Mm. as we kind of hit awards season and just kind of see what our broader impressions were, you know, what we kind of take away from what we're seeing. Um, the Man Booker and the National Book Award, they those lists and those winners are are, are released very close to one another. Mm-hmm. And they're very different. We've discussed on this show before about with the National Book Award, it's a little bit more for like a popular book. It's a lot yeah. about... Um, Yeah, it's just it's more uh, prestige. And the Man Booker is really interesting because it's a smaller and more specific juried award. It comes with a very significant amount of money. And it's probably the only award where the winners automatically will be guaranteed like a thousand percent sales increase. I was going to say you what was this? You read to me um, earlier today the stat on the George oh, Saunders yeah. book that so won last George year. Yeah, so George Saunders um, has sold like almost three hundred. So for Lincoln and the Bardo, yeah. which won the Man Booker yeah. last year, um, there was. Uh, over like a over twelve hundred percent sales increase, seventy <laughs> percent of their of the books like almost three hundred thousand sales uh-huh. came after the award was announced. You know, and what's that? What's crazy about that to me is that you know George Saunders is an established name. Mm-hmm. Like P- George, people were already George Saunders fans were already buying that book before the award. You know what I mean? And. Or, like, that audience was already pretty well established. So to even take someone who really kind of carved out a market for himself like that and still improve by that much, I really do, I really do think kind of speaks to the power of that particular award. Um, well, should we start Should we start with that one, like, just in terms of what we're looking yeah. at here? Yeah. Oh, but first things first. Um, mm-hmm. Every year, if you've listened to our award shows before, you know that Eric and I bet. Mm-hmm. We make a bet on who is going to win um, the usually just the fiction and the nonfiction national book award and then the man booker i'm 100 percent right this year by the way i i have a perfect feel for it last year last year i was off last year you won last year i did win. first year the first year we did it i crushed it yeah you crushed and i felt really really proud of myself for like 365 days but anyway we're not going to (laughs) we're not going to um make our predictions in this episode. We'll probably do it a little bit later in the year, but we do want your advice. What should the, like, what should the loser be forced to do? So previously the loser had to read 
Uh, I read a sex scene from a Jonathan Franzen novel. We read sex scenes from uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. Like we can do whatever oh, yeah, we you both want. Lost, yeah, because yeah, we. Bo- well, yeah. I lost less than you. Yeah. Uh, but we both right. lost last right. year. Mm-hmm. So we're open to suggestions. In the past, it's just been reading sex scenes, but you know, because Eric blushes so prettily. Uh, but send us I'm your suggestions dainty. at print run podcast on twitter or printrunpodcast at gmail.com okay so now let's get into the awards so i guess like taking you know like i said i think almost more interesting than going list by list is to kind of take them as a whole one thing um you know we've talked about before and you kind of just touched on just now was the idea that the the man booker is typically the more like readable of the two, yeah. right? Like, or it's the one. It's like the. It's like you're saying. It's the cool book. It's the one that maybe didn't quite get the the popular kind of mainstream acclaim, but like this is the good, like the best. People treat the man booker like that is the best book. It you prizes know? It, it prizes itself on being really surprising. Yes. Um. Yeah. They have a different jury every year mm-hmm. that and and like a lot of the time, the jury will talk about what they picked. Yeah. Like there was like 171 submissions for the man booker this year the book has to be it has to be written um in english and published in the uk previously it was just for british citizens um but they they always like talk really interesting about all of their works so like last year they talked a lot about how all of the books kind of dealt with moving through spaces and like liminality and kind of the come like the complexity of like human transitions like a lot of the books last year had to do with like borders Mm -hmm. right like either between like with lincoln and the bardo like the spirit world and you know like the living world or like literal borders like across countries um and like colonial and so and then this year they've the the jury has selected to talk about the list in terms of language yeah. Right. They like they all are talking about how <laughs> language is the primary factor of why this book, why a book is good. And that's like that's interesting to me that that is kind of their um, their I guess their joining focus, you know, with the list this year. Mm-hmm. And just real quick, just so we have them. Um, the books this year are <clears throat> um, Anna Burns's Milkman, um, Essie Aduyan's Washington Black. Daisy Johnson's Everything Under, Rachel Kushner's The Mars Room, Richard Powers' The Overstory, and Robin Robertson's The Long Take. Um, what strikes me about this list this time, especially when thinking about the National Book Award list that we're going to get into, too, is is structural stuff, mm-hmm. actually. Um, because to me, looking at this, and I've, I've read The Mars Room and know a little bit about some of these other ones, but... Um, these are all books that feature like kind of a fragmented, you know, narrative style. You know, they bounce around a little bit. Maybe they feature, you know, like the Mars Room has like, you know, some third person narration in it, some first person narration in it, some other stuff kind of going on in between. Um, you know, these are books that sort of feel a little bit less linear to mm-hmm. me in terms of um, just the way the kind of plot progresses. And so it's almost like they are, you know, you know, thinking about larger like fiction trends, to me, this is what I'm seeing a lot of like market wise too. And yeah. I think this is in a lot of ways this list, uh, for better or worse, honestly, because I would say that 
the National Book Award list, like for my money, is like the more readable of the two lists, which isn't always the case, right? Like like we like we just said, um, the Man Booker is usually the award for the book that is like the most fun reading experience, you know. And I would mm-hmm. actually like looking at the two lists. I would not necessarily agree with that this year. I think National Book Award might have some more um, like just flat out pleasurable reads. And just trend wise, I think. Um, this kind of thing where you've got, like, speaking of The Mars Room, which is a book I've, you know, thought a lot about and have read and have recommended uh, even some fiction writers on my list. Um, it's it's a great book. I don't think it's going to win this award, but it is a very strong book that I enjoyed quite a bit. Just that idea of, like, that sort of um, collage-style narrative, right, where you've got a few different strands and part of the intrigue is, like, figuring out how they fit together and things aren't always perfectly linear and, like, some of it is like just this stylistic, um, you know, fragmentation trick that ends up coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is very much on trend. And so when I look at this list, I do see this as a pretty good like snapshot of what 2018 books should look like. You know, in terms of like what's popular right now and what um, what where fiction is going. And I, I guess I just find that interesting. Like we are, um, like remember when we did uh, that writing by reading episode on uh, Jennifer Egan's book on yep. Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach. The thing that was like the, the refrain over and over and over again about that book was that it was so shocking in how traditional it was. Right. Remember that? It was like, this is just a book with a straightforward narrative. What the hell is this? And Since I got really mad at the ending. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, Not in like, it's a bad ending, but I just got mad at yeah. it because it was a very traditionally organized book that then subverted what it was at the end. But like it was, it was, the point is like, it was so notable in the fact that it just like told a story straight through <laughs> um, as opposed to, I think where a lot of fiction is headed in an interesting way. Like I like this stuff, but it is, um, it is something to kind of observe in terms of like trends of where, of where we're headed. Yeah, there. I mean, the Man Booker has a novel in verse in the shortlist yeah, yeah. right now. It in the long list, it had a graphic novel, the first ever mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, like it's the books are different, right? You know, there's in the in the Man Booker, there's a book about you know Washington Black is about an escaped slave in the Caribbean. Then you have. You know, the overstory, which, which is, is like, a tree book. <laughs> Hell yeah. Woods books. Where, where are my Woods books? People Milkman at? is described as a book where like nothing happens and mm-hmm. the like the events of the story happen because of inaction. Like so they're all very different. But to me, it feels like for the first time in a really long time, the National Book Award has really like grabbed what is in and I know that the National Book Award is obviously an American award whereas the other one is a British award like I know that but I feel like it's really captured in a way that the man booker perhaps hasn't Mm -hmm. what it means to be a person in 2018 that I think I think that's a fascinating point and a good point because it feels almost like the man booker is it's like got a it's like you're saying like it's a more language consideration and a more structural consideration. Right. But like National Book Award this year, I think you're totally right. It feels like it's got a more human consideration, right? Like right. experience. I mean, even just thinking about, you know, there are two books about Florida. <laughs> There's two books by native authors which I don't think has ever happened before. You know, there's there's a there's a couple of different books about the 
black experience. You know, an American marriage is about a character who's incarcerated and then comes out. You you know, so like there's a lot of, I think, diversity of experience that I think the man booker has talked about is, you know, there's wide ranging from, you know, this character in this place to this character in this place across time and space. But I think in terms of the different humans that we're going to be reading about, Mm -hmm. I'm really into this to this NBA list. Me too. I mean, I think that it's let's let's go through it real quick. Yeah, sure. Okay, so we have uh, Jamel Brinkley's A Lucky Man, Jennifer Clements' Gun Love, Lauren Groff's Florida, Mm -hmm. Daniel Gumbiner's The Boat Builder, Brandon Hobson's Where the Dead Sit Talking. Tiari Jones, American Marriage, Rebecca Makai, The Great Believers, Sigrid Nunez, The Friend. Dog Book. Dog Book. Tommy <laughs> Orange, They're There. And uh, Nafisa Thompson Spires, Heads of the Colored People. Can I just make, I just want, this is a totally separate point, and we don't ever do this on the show, but quick manuscript wish list thing. If you've got mystical stuff happening in Florida, please, please send it to me. I love Florida books. Um, and there's a couple on this list. So um, they're in. Florida is in. Eric wants nothing <laughs> more than like a new swamp. I do. It's the only thing I've wanted in like all my years of posing. But anyway, um, <laughs> back to the list. <clears throat> back to mm. back to this list. Back. Not your manuscript <laughs> <Back>. wish list. <laughs> um, I would say here like um, like I have, and this is kind of maybe a broader point about publishing culture and the way the kind of conversation is drawn. But I feel I feel really certain which book is gonna win, and I might be you know I might be wrong. I probably I mean statistically I probably will be wrong, but I think there's like like I feel like I've got a feel for it this year, and I think that's because why, what, yeah, tell me why. It's because you know at the beginning of this summer, and really kind of this spring, you know when uh, you know like the first big season of 2018, right? Like spring hits, and what happens? You start hearing okay, what books? What are the hot books? going to be through spring and summer like what do you need to be picking up to read Mm -hmm. and i remember really like paying attention to that conversation for a solid month and like i'm someone who tries i mean and fails most of the time because there's just too many books but tries to kind of keep up with what's happening like in you know in sort of the published stuff beyond my own list but like um there were some books that just have the buzz right yeah there are some books that just get mentioned over and over and over and over again and those are the ones that always end up feeling like they've just got that energy behind them. That An older example them. of this book is Pachinko. Yes. I'm actually, that book is everywhere. I'm actually reading that right are now. Are you? Yeah, I just is it worth it. it? The first is... 30 pages are good, yeah. Okay, um, good. But I will report back. Um, but there's what's so interesting here is I set out at the beginning of the spring, the three that I just no one would stop talking about and got me to go to hoof it over to the bookstore and buy copies of were The Mars Room mm-hmm. by Rachel Kushner. I heard about that one. Uh-huh. Florida uh, Florida by yep. Lauren Groff. Because she was, did she win the National Book Award in 2015? No, or she was, I think she was a finalist. Yeah, she okay. was a finalist with uh, Fates and Furies. Fates and Furies, yeah. Um, and then uh, Tommy Orange is There There mm. was has been a book that I feel like I haven't seen a kind of a grassroots indie bookstore enthusiasm for a book like that in, in a really long in a really, time like really it's it's notable and it, those are all you know and so i read all three and lo and behold we come to award season and what's on the list is all is all three of those and it just kind of speaks to i can't decide if the machine of kind of book chatter as it relates to kind of publicity efforts and online stuff and just the, the general state of 
and this is actually something we're going to get into on our next topic too, but just how we talk about books. I can't tell if this means it's working or if this means it's self-fulfilling. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, is the fact that the books we're talking about so much that they all, like, just to a book ended up on this list, this or the man booker, is that indicative that we are talking about the right books? Or is it indicative, which I think, I mean, to be clear, I loved all three of those books. This is not like, like, I really think they're all strong and deserve to be on this list. Or is it a sign that that discussion and that sort of critical conversation or commercial conversation ends up kind of steering the way these lists are shaped? You know what I mean? I think that the answer to that question is yes and no. Um, it's, it is mm-hmm. one, but it is also the other and it is also neither. Um, cause I think that there, we have to consider when we talk about buzz and it's something that we've done on this show before in terms of like, like political or celebrity books yeah. where it's like, there's a big difference between like buzz to make a splash and then like actual buzz. Right. So I mm-hmm. mentioned Pachinko that book. I first saw it two years ago when I was at BEA, right? Like two whole years ago. And I still see people mention that book like in publications every week, every week. It's still on Publishers Weekly, like on Publishers Lunch, that like trade thing that we get all the time. And like for all, you know, for all intents and purposes, like that book should be gone. Like we should be talking about other books. When I went and bought it the other Mm -hmm. week, I thought it was because it was a brand new book. I like missed it the first time oh, through. No. And like it turns out that I had just been kind of skipping it was, over it, it. No, it was being talked about like it was a brand new book. But I then I look at the publication. It's like this has been out forever. Yeah. And we're still discussing it like it's this brand new thing, which is cool. I mean, I think, you know, in a lot yeah. of ways for a book to kind of gain that kind of steam. So And so like with regards to like Pachinko versus like Fate and Fury, not to be uh, not to be confused with Lauren Grass Fates and Furies, which absolutely should still be talked about um, because it's excellent. Um, but like Fate and Fury, like that was one of those books where it sold out everywhere and everybody was clamoring to get their hands on it. And then all of a sudden it's gone. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. it's gone. And so I think there is something really wonderful about, I mean, it, especially in lit fic, mm-hmm. literary fiction, there's something very telling about a sustained buzz because when you have sustained buzz that means that the quality is there versus you know a maybe quicker book maybe a certain type of nonfiction book Mm -hmm. where it's just you know you know it's a flash in the pan anyone who follows us on twitter especially knows how i feel about the current state of um, nonfiction publishing, which is that we're just trying to like capture CNN chirons for for dollars, and I think it's terrible. So it is nice to see that kind of sustained, um, just that sustained pressure that a book like you know is in fi- fiction is better yeah. at keeping things alive. I think even than than nonfiction is. But um, of note is that um, the judges here for National Book Award, uh, Minjin Lee, who is the author of Pachinko, see, um, is, I told you, is I told ju- you, <laughs> she's everywhere, man. Um, so she's one of the judges this year, as is uh, Layla Lalami um, and a few other people. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, this is a long list. And we've got, you know, this and the man booker. Was there anything, you know, before we kind of do some some guessing, is there any sort of um, any other observation from any? any of this? I mean, I guess, like, I would point out, we're not really talking about it, but 
Um, the poetry list featured three Minnesota presses. Hey, the, the big three out here. They all made the list, which is exciting. So, yeah, I mean, the National Book Award also for fiction has A Lucky Man is published by Grey Wolf, mm-hmm. which is nice and local. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think I do want to talk about these projects, but I want to talk about them in terms of this other article, which you brought to my attention because yeah. I was out of the country. Uh-huh. Um, but Vulture published an article where, you know, we're 18 years into this new to this new millennia. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this new millennium. And they took a shot at the canon. And now that obviously is a too huge of a task to accomplish in an article like this, which they acknowledge. Um, and they say, um, I mean, basically what they've done here is they've sort of outsourced, you know, they just like found together a whole list of book people, um, all credible people who should have a say theoretically in which books get kind of remembered Mm -hmm. a mixture of like critics, authors, poets, you know, all sorts of different people. And basically they just asked them to kind of vote, like which books do you think should be remembered? And they sort of came up with this sort of, you know, democratized rank choice yeah. list. And One, can I like point out something to to everybody listening is that in the very beginning, you know, Vulture talks about how this task essentially doesn't really mean anything because uh-huh. it's only, you know, it's only been qualifiers galore. But the yeah, but then they this. said, yeah. unlike the old canons, ours is roughly half female, but less diverse than it should be, but generally preoccupied with difference. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, so which is you, really fascinating to me. Can I ask you a question about yes. that? Yes. When you hear, because we're talking, they've made this like the idea here was to create whatever they want. Like there are no rules to this. Like this right. is a this is a this is basically a fantasy draft. You know, this is a made up exercise. They could have done this however they wanted, and so for them to say not as diverse as it should be, in an exercise they controlled every factor of. Like, what do you, I'm not saying they did anything wrong because obviously they, they, they outsourced all this to as many different people as possible. You're going to get results you can't totally predict. But when you hear that, what do you think? Like, in terms of, like, how does it feel to say, hey, we made this thing and it's not as diverse as it should be. But here, like, does that say anything to you? It does. And it says that to a lot of the people who are talking about, you know, all these critics that they outsourced it to, right? Like... At the end of the day, um, widening the canon is not actually something they're interested in doing. Hmm. Or really? yeah, because because I think that like if somebody were to ask me, like uh-huh. Laura, yeah. who should be the you know most remembered novelist of the last eighteen years? Uh-huh. Um. Uh, you know, like in if we're thinking about like the canon, right? If I'm thinking about like my children's children reading this book, uh-huh. I would think that it is, first of all, incredibly important given what year we're living in right mm-hmm. now. I think that that would, I think it would be incredibly important for that book, whatever that book is, if it really wants to capture the zeitgeist of this moment, if it really wants to be a book that survives forever and teaches people about what this world was like, that person shouldn't be white. Like, I don't know what book I would say, but I feel like, you know, they people were asked to give one book, right? Like the best one, the best mm-hmm. one you think that is the most, you know, the, the for, for a canon, not just the best book, but the one that should be remembered forever. 
And that, I don't know, the fact that they acknowledge that it's not as diverse as it could be points to a lot of biases that aren't dealt with here. Sure. I mean, I, I would say some of that is simply the peril of the model that they used. I mean, you've got... Um, you know, various people voting for various things. Um, it's probably, it kind of calls into question, I think, what a canon is and how a canon should be shaped. Yeah. Um, with regard to like, you know, like they have this definition here that I keep staring at and I can't decide if I like or not and I'm leaning towards not liking it. What is it? Um, which is, here we go, it says, um, here we go, yeah. The modern literary canon took root in universities and became defined as the static product of consensus. A set of leather-bound volumes you could shoot into space to make a good first impression with the aliens. Mm. Why don't you like that? One, I don't know about the idea of, of static, I guess. Yeah. Like, to me, um, and this, you know, kind of gets into some of my fundamental critique with um, just sort of this exercise and also, like, this recent trend of, um, I feels like every single week... There's a new piece that sort of says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take some old book in the canon by some white man and we're going to take it out and remove it and fire it into a volcano. (laughs) And instead, we're going to put in some new book by someone else who's more worthy. Right. You've seen I mean, Electric Literature just launched a whole series on this. Like, yeah, Lit Hub has done stuff like this. I mean, Book Riot has done stuff like this. All these sites, you know, it's sort of a common thing, right? Like replacing the canon, right, is sort of just the general trope of the exercise. And part of its clickbaity draw is that it lets you, you know, rage at a little bit the books you were forced to read in high school. Yeah. Right. And I get that impulse, but it also kind of gets at this static idea that I don't necessarily love that's presented in this article too, which is that it's the zero sum game of if you're in it or not in it, it it will in, if in order to celebrate the books we want to celebrate, we have to like intentionally yank these other ones out. Mm -hmm. And And then we all have to agree on them. And like, and I guess that that kind of, it kind of, you know, it kind of weirds me out in a little bit because not because I'm not all for, um, you know, like it's we should de-emphasize literature by, you know, white men and we should, you know, make an effort to widen. But widening the canon, as you just described it, is an act of stretching, not an act of fitting into the same slots. Right. You Like when you say like, for instance, I mean, yesterday, um, Electric Lit published the first in this new series. Right. And the, the premise of this one was, well, we're taking out the Great Gatsby. <laughs> we're removing the Great Gatsby because we hate it. It's overtalked. It's overblown. All this kind of stuff. And we're putting in something new. And I look at that, on the, and on the one hand, you know, they mention these books, and it's like, great. I would love, I think it's great that we're celebrating all this stuff, but it's the filling the great Gatsby-sized hole mm-hmm. that really kind of weirds me out, because it's almost like, in that, in that regard, you're still asking them, you're still using the framework set by this previous version of the canon you didn't like. Right. And it's like... You're basically like taking, you know, these themes outlined in the Great Gatsby or whatever and saying, hey, let's find something kind of reminiscent of that and fill in something we think is better. And it's like even when you're doing that, you're still using like I guess I struggle to see the reasoning behind not just arguing for the books you like as opposed to needing to intentionally pull others away, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when I hear and as it relates to kind of this article, when I see like this kind of static product, you know, the static set of leather-bound books. 
I don't really, I guess I don't really see the canon that way. And I know that that's how it gets used because it ends up being what's taught in classrooms and stuff. But like, I think that we can kind of expand things. I think that we can simply choose to emphasize and treat our critical conversations as more elastic, you know? And I feel like it's less about what's taught and how it's taught. And it's more about like, again, I'm going to use this phrase, like capturing the true zeitgeist, you know, like they Vulture talks about how the purpose was not to build a fixed library, but to take a blurry selfie of a cultural moment, which I feel like is more accurate. Yeah. Um, But when I think about the can and that's how I think about Canon. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, it can change a hundred years from now. Somebody will discover something else and say, no, no, no. Like, this is incredibly important. It wasn't necessarily important then, but it's important now. And here's why. Right, there's that hindsight that happens. Exactly. When, yeah. But there's there's one thing that I really caught on that I want to bring up mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of these books, I don't believe fit in the current canon. And not because they're bad and not because they don't deserve to be, you know, like, you know, shoved into space to introduce, you know, aliens. But I think I'm picturing it like a like one of those Simpsons aliens. Like me too. Being like being like handed a stack of books by Jonathan's. Like, what is this? First of all, there's only one Jonathan in this list. Can I don't know. That's crazy. That yeah, no, that's, that's, that's it's, probably it's the Franzen. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, they're using Okay, the the 21st century, like this is the canon of the 21st century, but I believe that is the wrong state, start date. Okay. Because I feel like in 2000, the books that were being written were very different than the books in 2001. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's kind of been my point for a long time, too, which is that you kind of look at, like literary periods are not arbitrarily drawn. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I would say that... um, at least for me, and I think, you know, I don't think it's a unique point. Clearly, we kind of agree on it. Is like, I sort of view 9-11 as... The start of a new... The start of a new literary period. Yeah. And I think, like, the reason I feel that way largely is because, you know, there are certain events in the world that take place that are simply so kind of grandiose and cataclysmic that to write a fictional character in a contemporary setting is to have one that who would logically be aware of that moment having happened. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. you can't write, like you can't write a book right now set in contemporary times with a character who I guess, you know, unless they were like, you know, there's maybe reasons, but like that character lives in a post in a, by definition a post nine 11 world in a way that I think changes the literature. And I mean, that's a very deep topic that you'd have to spend a lot more time than just this episode to kind of get into. But I think your point is correct that 2001 marks the, the start period. of things and, more than and i think it's and and to be clear like we're not talking about just like books that happen in contemporary times like i think there is just a quality of you know the mind like the state of mind the mind frame that they that a writer is at and that what interests them so i think that post 2001 there has been a lot more focus on you know to go back to last year's man booker like a lot of those liminal states Mm -hmm. there's a lot of focus on to this man this year's man booker um there's a lot of focus on 
interesting forms and doing things really in new ways. Yeah. You know, there's interests in borders. There's interests in diverse voices that haven't been seen before. We I talk about distrust and xenophobia and, you know, and I, and I think we were talking about this yesterday. I think overall, I think in the 80s, 90s, and in 2000, a lot of the works were very small. And by that, I don't mean, you know, like they didn't matter. But what I mean is I think there was a lot of focus on an individual and the complexities that an individual presents. And I feel like since 2001 and since, you know, social media and the Internet and all that jazz, um, I think we've expanded. So now that a person is the how we get to a concept of a book that is a lot more focused on society or larger groups of people. Sure. Like I think I think we're now talking about the state of the world in a lot of different ways than we were before. No, that makes sense. And I think like one crucial point in there that you just kind of brought up is the idea that you know, the novel, you know, a novel that kind of fits the canon now is really, truly indicative of being part of this, like, cultural literary snapshot of the moment. Mm-hmm. Those books can be about periods earlier than 2000 or 2001, right? Like, a person who would sit down, like, I think you could pretty safely argue that someone sitting down to write historical fiction right now in the year 2018 is still writing, like, regardless of the topic they're taking at hand. They're writing a post 9-11 novel, you know what I mean, even if their subject matter is beforehand, because I think that that literary quality seeps into the writing more than the subject matter. Yeah, like I for, agree. For me, what kind of defines this literary period, and I, and to be clear, I don't think it's an accident that our man booker list this year is like novels that are fragmented and a little bit addled and kind of deal with, you know, you know, this kind of looming, you know, anxiety or neurosis or whatever it is. Like, those are, to me, are the qualities of just, like, this thing has happened, and more things, because of that first thing, have continued to happen, and now we've just kind of kind of figure out how to live lives that feel seemingly separate from it, even as it looms over us, mm-hmm. you know? And that, to me, is, is really fascinating, and it's, you know, kind of looking at this list, um, you know, I yeah, I mean, I think there's some stuff that fits, there's some stuff that feels maybe a little bit less to that definition, which is probably fine. I mean, we're, you know, it's early. We don't really know what, but um, I guess it kind of gets at that at the question, like when you're designing a canon, mm-hmm. are you picking what you feel the best books are or are you picking the books you feel are most indicative of something? You know what I mean? Like there's something that's... A combo? It's like a, it's like a combo, but it's not the same task, actually. Yeah. And here, you know, they sort of let each person... What's interesting, I think, about here is that because they use so many different people, which I think is probably, at the end of the day, an imperfect approach, but the right, I mean, I don't know what you would do to kind of make it better for this particular exercise at this state in time, but everyone's kind of using their own criteria, you know? For me, though, it's, so maybe this is, you know, my English degree talking here, but, like, I think that you know outside of me reading a book for representation like when i read books for fun mm-hmm. um i think one of the very last things i consider is is this book good 
Yeah. Like it's for yeah. me, it's more important that like, is this book worthwhile? Mm-hmm. And I think that those are two very different things. And so I think that perhaps like at least for me in my creation of my what I think the canon should be, I think that there are, of course, going to be good books in there because books that are written really well are worthwhile more often than books that are written poorly. Yeah. No, but, there's always a correlation, but it's not the same Yeah, thing. There's, a, there's always a correlation, but I do believe that books that are worthwhile are the ones that stick around. Like, Tessa the Durbervilles is a shitty book. Like, it's really? three... You don't like it's, it? Well, I no, because, I mean, so, like, structurally, yeah. it's a mess. Yeah. It's got it's a, mess. a ton of... Yeah, it's a mess. Like, it's a mess. Hmm. But it's around for a reason. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, oh, totally. And, and so, like, that is something... And, you know, what we consider to be a good book will change in 50 years or 100 years. Well, and some of that, I think, especially... For me, especially 50 years. Yeah. Almost. Because... You know, right now we're in that period where, and this is, I, I swear, we have to write this down and do a whole, like, other show on just on this specific topic because I, you could spend hours talking about this. But, like, it's, you know, like, you, this, the, you know, these historical m- moments happen at the beginning of, um, you know, the century. You got 9-11 and then, you know, the invasion of Iraq and, you know, things like that. And the it's economic like collapse. The collapse, things like Trump that. Trump being elected. But, like, but yeah. so, but... I would say I would split off Trump being elected and maybe even the collapse of the collapse more so right now simply because publishing moves slow. And so to have a novel that's been influenced and informed by those moments, it takes some time. Right. And so I think we're kind of now in the period where I hope we're going to start seeing the novels that really, really take into account those, you know, those forces now that they've kind of sat for a while and have informed who we are. Yeah. You know, in a way, like I don't think, like when we've t- we've done this uh, topic before already too, but um, like I don't think we have any Trump novels yet because no, it's I too don't soon. because we can't because it's it's there's not you know nothing has happened and I you know I've written about that too before but like it's that's going to take some time and it's going to take some time to kind of see um, you know we're getting a little bit more crash literature like we're in a I think we're in a period now where it's very hard for me to read a character. In, in a contemporary American novel who I would plausibly think hasn't had their life affected in some way by the financial crisis. Yeah, you know what that's I mean? like, true. I, you know, I read this book, um, you know, this novelist, and he's written this book that I think about all the time with regard to this, and it's, it's an unpublished manuscript still, but um, just in the background of it, there's this, you know, this, the main character's brother who factors into the plot 0%. It's just like a biographical detail. But he's got this brother who went, who's a soldier who died in Afghanistan. And it's factored in 0% to really the story at all. But it's just like this psychic weight that's sitting there. And it doesn't have anything to do with the story. And it doesn't have anything to do really with, the, you know, the way the characters interact with each other on the surface. But... It's it's one of those things like just as part of the historical circumstance of the moment that just feels absolutely essential to the whole larger equation. Yeah. And I see and I see things like that. I think that um, we're going to see things like, you know, the Trump election be a part of that. We're going to see, you know, the crash now as we kind of get, you know, around a decade past it. And I want to highlight one thing that you just mentioned, Eric, um, about that the the writer and the characters are just affected this by, part of by current they, events, it's right? It's part of who they are, yeah. So my question to you is this. So you're a really big 
Foer fan. I am, yeah, I like him. Um, and so, like, extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh-huh. That's written by Jonathan Safran yes, Foer. Yes, it is. Um, good. Just checking. There's a lot of Jonathans <laughs> Look, that it's really hard to keep honestly, track of. Them. And honestly, some of the Jonathans were missing off this list. I know it's unpopular to say <laughs> where are the Jonathans, but I'm telling you, I could have would have loved to see some uh, Lethem on here. But anyway, yeah. Continue. Okay, so extremely loud and incredibly close is a 9/11 book, right? Like it's a book about in the most literal sense, literal sense you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Yes, it's about this kid. You know, his dad. You know, kind of dies, and it's a beautiful book. Like I recommend it to everyone, and pro- probably anyone listening to this has read it. Like it's ubiquitously popular, but. So that book, uh-huh. does that belong in the new canon, like the post 9-11 canon, do you think? I, so what's so crazy about it is I'm tempted to say no just because it takes on the subject so head on in a kind of a paradoxical way, you mm. know, which is kind of to say that to me, and you kind of elucidated it beautifully, you know, earlier, like to me, the 9-11 novel is less about the thing itself and more about the weight it imposes afterward. Right. You know? And so to have a book that takes it on not as subtext, but as text, right? Like by saying this is a book about that day and that moment and this life that was affected, you know, specifically on that day, that almost by definition rules it out and looks to me as almost like the completion of a past literary period. And Mm -hmm. I know the book was like, you know, it's written in like early 2000s. Like it's... Um, you know, this is, you know, according to the time frame, it would exist. But like in terms of like, you know, literary style and structuring, it feels to me like the end, like that sort of book. It's the closing bell. Yeah, exactly. It feels like the closing bell of a period of like the past period as opposed to the start of this new one, Mm. you know? And it's like, because to me, what we're being defined by now, literarily speaking, I don't even know if literarily is a word. It is. Um, it's like, it's just about that background paranoia, you know, it's about being, feeling like you're being watched, it's about feeling like, feeling suspicious of your neighbors, it's about feeling like at any given moment, whatever precarity in your life might come crashing down around you, you know, inequality is, you know, only worsening, you know, things like that. It's, and that to me feels much more pervasive than a book that like literally tackles it head on. Mm-hmm. And so... I guess, you know, as we kind of think about this larger list, that's what I'm looking for. For early, like, if you were to, like, kind of round up and say, okay, first 20 years of this century, you know, what you know, what are the books that I think are most important? It's like that. those are the ones, like, the ones that kind of really tackle that sense of dread and just wait. And maybe you can't even, just like that psychic itch that you can't scratch, like, that just, like, sitting behind you somehow and from a variety of different experiences that I think we both kind of feel weren't totally represented in you know in the list here but man this makes our new count- canon sound super cheery <laughs> well I mean <laughs> what I mean list it out what good news has happened over the you know what I mean? yeah like, that's it's, a good point it's it but it's like it's always been this way like how do you define other you know literary periods you're like what post I mean it's all wars you know what I mean it's it's post-war literature it's yeah you know it's things that are always tied to cataclysmic moments that change the way people see themselves in the world and I don't know let's move on yeah to our ending section which is (laughs) our Tulun it may concern so I'm gonna read this one for you Eric because I think it applies very well to you oh man I can't wait to hear what this is. Taloon, it may concern. 
Recently, there have been multiple agents leaving agenting to pursue their own careers as writers. What are your thoughts on this? What happens to the poor writers who have finally obtained the golden egg only to have it taken away by suddenly by someone who suddenly decides they're more interested in publishing their own book rather than the one they were contracted to sell? The agencies don't seem to be picking these authors up either. These aren't new agents realizing publishing isn't the career for them. These are established agents who write mediocre books and land deals because of their industry connections. Mm, Sincerely, man. querying and concerned. Shots fired. Those are some shots. Um, You're well, a writer. I am, but I just like taking the kind of the question um, in, you know, in total. I guess I would, like, there seems to be a particular uh, frustration here with the mode of exit. Like, I guess, you know, yeah. one thing that happens in publishing all the time, regardless of where they go, is people leaving publishing. Yeah, you know which happens I mean? all the time. Which happen- which is a thing that occurs, and I, I understand why that's frustrating. And But it feels like there's, like, a particular, at least for this author, and probably justifiably so, there's, like, a particular insult to the idea that they're dropping their capacity in which they're you know helping your writing career to then go kind of just pursue their own Mm -hmm. um i would maybe i suppose it's probably situational and case by case whether the books are mediocre um i would say that probably maybe you know one way to kind of tackle it because clearly what this writer feels is that agents are basically using their industry connections to get themselves book deals right which actually doesn't happen well that's what i was going to get at like so if we're getting to the real root of the issue right there's this author it seems is frustrated with the idea that agents are messing around in publishing and then rather than devoting themselves to their clients are instead then turning around dropping their clients and using those connections for themselves or they're using this like agenting job as a way to get ahead in your own career rather than doing what this agent has or with that this author has worked so hard to do right and i would just so i want to talk for a second about that like do you feel obviously knowing people is a useful thing to do like it is good to know other agents and it's good to but nobody gives money to somebody just because they've worked with them or like them before i would say so that's my point too is i don't know obviously knowing people opens doors in any industry not just publishing but publishing too definitely um but the mediocre book problem that you're referring to, I'm not sure that's agent specific. That's not nepotism. You know I, yeah, that's I, that's just that's just publishing. <laughs> yeah, welcome to publishing. No, but I like on the one hand, on the one hand, I think this critique is unfair because I think that, um, you know, you should people should not be like the mode of exit feels almost irrelevant to me. Like the thing that's frustrating here is turnover yeah. as it relates to your as it rela- But on the other hand, I do, I do get it. Like I get it. Like the frustration of being like. Maybe where I would kind of draw the line is like, as you were working with this person, did it feel like they were more invested in their own life Mm -hmm. rather than yours? And like, in that case, maybe, you know, there's like a real cause for gripe here. But um, but there's a lot of really great things about working with an agent who's also a writer. Yeah, because then I would agree. I, I like I think that hand over fist, you are incredibly more empathetic towards your author's needs. Yeah. Like as a creative yeah. than I am because I don't write. Right. And like there are there are things. And if you want to be sure that this person that you're trying to work with will never leave, asking if they're a writer will not be like. Going to go right is not the reason people leave this business. They leave this business because agenting 
is commission based and it's a ton of work for very low pay uh-huh. and you know nothing is guaranteed and so if they leave this business to go right a lot of the time they're leaving this business to go right and also get a different job it's also you know one thing you know for me that i've you know kind of thinking about it most of the agents i know who are also writers are still agents right yeah you know what i mean like they or are they were writers first and were, then yeah. got interested in the and other so side it feels like you know the specific grievance here i think i think holds weight and i think that i I can understand where the frustration comes from. And the real problem, to me, the real problem here is other agents, like the the agency infrastructure not helping that author transition to finding someone else in their agency or helping them find, or like, you know, personally, like if I were to ever, and I'm not going to do this, but if I were to ever like leave agenting, like the one of my first concerns would be making sure that my clients at least had like letters of rec to other people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, so that that dropping of the ball feels a little hard to me. And I would that part. I think there's maybe a reason to be a little bit frustrated. But there's something um, there, that there's that that brings up something to talk about on the call, right? Yeah. So like when you're having the yeah. call and you're interviewing a uh, agent who's interested in working with you, mm. like it's very fair to ask like. You know, how long have you been in this business? Like, you know, like is what are your, you know, ask the agent, like what are your final, you know, your long term career ambitions? Like what are you really interested in? And then what happens if you leave? Yep. Right. Like and a lot of agencies have the option before they cut you loose to say, OK, this agent is on a leave of absence or they're leaving or something these other agents in this agency would be interested in working with you. Mm. Do you want to talk to them? And I think like, r- that is a system that some agencies have in place and others don't. And so that's something to talk about at the very beginning. And because, I think writers are owed yeah. that to be clear. Like I think yeah. that if a, if an agent signs you, they're signing you to the agency too. Like you're not just that person's client. You are yeah. a larger body's client. And there is, to me, there is some institutional responsibility for making because sure. Because there's institutional support. Yeah. yeah. It, like I feel like there is something owed here that perhaps this author feels they have not received, in which case there is absolutely reason to be frustrated. Now, I again, I don't necessarily believe that there's a correlation between the amount of mediocre books that get published and <laughs> those books coming from I don't believe that nepotism is truly coming at the end. I don't either. But deals. here here is one thing to consider. Um, so like we all agree that there are a lot of bad books published because uh-huh. everybody like not no single person can like all of the books that come out. Right. Right. Like there are a lot of books that I turn down and then I see on the New York Times bestseller list. That's actually happened to me a few <laughs> months ago. Uh, and it, it happens, though. It, happens. it totally uh, yeah. happens. It totally, totally, totally happens. And um and I think that why you see former agents who then turn to writing and become really successful is not because they're bad writers with connections or because they're absolutely amazing writers. It's because they have an in- an extraordinarily deep understanding of their genre they're and they know how to sell their yeah, book. They're good at pitching. Like that's they're... why it's because they've taken all of those skills that we try to help you with for your first pages show and your query show and all of that. And they do the work because they already have the background. So, like, you can be that good, too. You can be excellent at selling your own book and, you know, like, really, really dig deep into the genre conventions and what's selling. And I would just say, like, 
on a very personal level, um, you know, I haven't sold a book yet, but I do write. You know, I write for various you know publications and stuff when the chance arises, and um, I you know that's some my writing life is something that I put professional time into. You mm-hmm. know, um, I would just say like. I think it definitely makes me a better agent. And I think that those two things really feed into each other well. You know, I would say that being someone who works on fiction has helped me work on other people's fiction and vice versa. Like, I think that um, working through solutions to edits on my own stuff has helped me turn around and, you know, think through similar problems or plot dynamics and, you know, clients I've worked with. Um, And so, like, I personally would... um, I think that I would want an agent who is a writer. I would not want an agent who was going to drop everything with no plan for me if they were going to go pursue their writing career. I think that's something like, again, I think that there's valid criticism here, but I don't think that the idea of agents also being writers is a bad thing for the industry or even a bad thing for the writers that they're representing. I think that's a good point, Eric. And if you are listening and you are an agent who writes, Eric's new novel is almost done being edited, <laughs> and he'll be ready. Oh, stop it. I know. Okay. Anyway. Um, any, <laughs> it is not you. almost done, by the way. It's going to be more like 10 more years. <laughs> In the grand scheme of things, it's almost done. On, on the timeline of your life, it's almost done. Um, anyway, thank you so much for joining us on this, our 82nd episode of Print Run. Remember, we are going to be off for at least one week, maybe up to three, we'll see. It we'll we'll see what the uh, what the what the moms are wanting from our time, and with this whole wedding fiasco that we're about to go into. Mm-hmm. But either way, uh, pray for us. We'll be around. Um, <laughs> send us your queries and your first pages and your questions and your angst to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you. Once we're wed.